0: First to check the sound. Do you have it in the back? Great. Tonight we're going to talk about the third foundation of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of mind. The Pali word is citta. And you might have heard us refer to citta, C-I-T-T-A. And it's interesting that there is this one word in this ancient Indian language Pali, citta. But we don't have one word. We actually have to translate it into two. One is mind and one is heart. And so if we talk about mindfulness of citta, we can use one word, but it's foreign. Or we could keep trying to interchange mind and heart. So, I might just refer to it as mindfulness of mind. It's a little more common to translate chitta as mind. But the one thing that might lose is a much sort of deeper embodied sense of knowing something. Much more intuitive, less cognitively complex. Sometimes we know things and you might say, I really knew it in my gut. Chitta is the whole, uh, is all the qualities that end up knowing our experience, end up having the experience. And sometimes when we just use mindfulness of mind, it tends to point up to where we're doing a lot of our thinking. And so I may rock back and forth between citta and mind um, so that we get more familiar with this word citta, but it takes some getting used to the sounds of citta and seeing it as a totality of everything we call uh, emotional, so a more embodied intuition, and also all of the fast, crunchy, cognitive stuff that's happening. So this is the third foundation of mindfulness. And just because we're on the third foundation of mindfulness doesn't mean you have to be up to speed and already mastered the first two mindfulness of the body, and mindfulness of vedna, or feeling tone. You, if you keep on this path of vipassana, of insight meditation, you will be working through these four foundations um, until you're fully liberated, which could be trillions of lives from now. So settle in. <laughs> you know, enjoy the ride. Uh, but these are not things that are expected to be understood and uh, met, even on a seven-day retreat like this. So there are four foundations of mindfulness. The first one is body. The second one is Vedana, feeling tone. The third is mindfulness of mind or citta. And then the fourth one is looking at the systems that get tangled up in suffering or the systems we can cultivate that end up Uh, causing our freedom, or tends to undermine suffering. And that fourth one has its own nuances and complexities. But I might point to it a little bit tonight, because it's an interesting contrast to this third foundation. Buddha wanted us to develop mindfulness, which is present-time intimacy with the flow of what's happening, And since everything is in some dynamic mode of change, we're kayaking, we're canoeing, we're on the river going through time. And then time sometimes produces fairly stable experiences, but because it's not truly stable, it can and will change. Uh, And everything is going through that process. And when things are repetitive or they change so slowly, Our ordinary minds will take a snapshot and say, this is stable, and actually don't have to track the subtle nuances. I can just refer to this one thing and then take some relief in the fact that, oh, this feels so stable, I don't have to keep on feeling into the nuances, I'm just going to call this thing, like this room, is in a stable moment. So I'm like, okay, got it. But if I do that, it's simpler, but it begins to set me up for being confused when changes happen. And then there's going to be a gap between what I want to be stable and what actually is happening. I talked about my dad aging, and he's been there as long as I've been alive. And by the time I was even aware of him and aware that he was growing old, it just made him a little mellower, and there was some point where he just like, got wider, millimeter by millimeter, his face got wider as the years went on, his body frame got wider, his hair got a little gray. And so there's so slow, the changes, and I knew him so well that it was very comforting whenever I met him, whenever, I've lived far away, but whenever we met, I didn't have to start from scratch in knowing him. And a lot of it was like putting on uh, an old broken-in shoe. Just like we had our jokes, we had our ways of talking, and we'd sometimes just go through these really comfortable routines together. And then as I did this practice, I began to tune in much more subtly to the fact that he was changing and I was changing. And so the old maps needed to be updated there was, I could still find a lot of things that was comfortable in my relationship to him. But we were not in identical places if I came back three months or six months later. So it's been slow updates. And then uh, in the last seven years, there's been some very quick changes in his aging. And now that's uh, unnerving. But that means I'm 55 now. That means for the first 48 years of my life, mapping out the universe. There's the Rocky Mountains, and there's my parents. And they're both changing about the same speed. Like, <laughs> As far as I know, that's, I've known them as these very capable people who are 30 years ahead of me in life and had things to say about taxes and marriage. And it's like, wow, you guys, like the Rockies, you've always been here, and you're so old uh, and wise. But they were changing all along. And then as I started to do this practice, you might not assume they're the same. And so I started looking for ways that they were changing. So we're all everything is changing. This building is getting older day by day. And you can't see it, but the wood in the walls is getting older. And at some point, it will need to be fixed because it's not permanent. So that's something that we're tuning into, what the Buddha wanted us to tune into is not only that things change, but there are certain, there are these four places that if we can take our mindful intimacy and get to know these four areas, we'll see that they're, they're usually a common denominator of why we are suffering. So the first one, knowing your body. Now most of us, you know, we have this saying uh, to know something like the back of your hand. I bet if we took pictures of everybody's hands, the back of their hands, and put them out on the dining room table, you actually couldn't find yours unless it had like a <laughs> ring or like you chipped a nail or something like that, or you had a very decorative way of doing uh, nail polish. Just at the back of your hand, just this part right here, you don't know that. <laughs> Sometimes when I'm on these retreats, I'm like, the shape of my teeth, I should know that, <laughs> I don't how can I have these teeth and feel it all day long? And yet I'm like, oh, ah, oh <laughs> huh. So there is this body, and we're actually estranged from it. We don't know it. And so a lot of the first foundation is coming to terms with having a human animal that is your home base for this life and watching it do a very natural thing to grow, to age, and to die. That is completely natural. But we are not in alignment with that, and therefore its aging process terrifies us. And how could that be? All we see is that it's a natural process for animals to age and eventually die. So how could that be something that we're misaligned with? And again, it's like the teeth in your mouth. You have constant access to them, and you don't know them the back of your hand. Constant access to it, but you don't really know it. So the Buddha wants us to develop mindfulness, which is a heightened intimacy with life that we don't usually have in ordinary conventional living, and then bring it to these places, he said, misunderstanding the body, misunderstanding Vedna, this feeling tone, misunderstanding the mind, and misunderstanding these processes that brew our suffering. We are always misguessing or misperceiving why we're actually suffering. And so, like, uh, I mean, it's, you could call it a science in the fact that uh, I when I was in fifth grade, I had to take a thermometer and measure when water boiled. And I got it, you know, 100 degrees Celsius, 212 Fahrenheit. And it's like, there, you don't have to believe me, you don't have to believe your teachers. You can do the experiment, but You can see for yourself. And so the Buddha said, don't believe this and don't be in awe of me because I say this. Develop your own mindfulness. Look into these areas and you'll see that you start untangling suffering patterns that you can't do in conventional living. We don't have enough mindfulness, enough concentration. We're not aiming it in the right places. So that's why it takes, uh, it can take, a lifetime, and it's a beautiful journey to keep going deeper into understanding your body, and coming to terms with it, being in awe of it, knowing its frailties, its strengths. Understanding this feeling tone feeling so such a narrow band of experience. This little, like, I want to have for me uh, this perfect chocolate chip cookie, and it is pleasant. It's like that's such a win, and the pleasure really is in the cookie. Unless you get one that uh, doesn't live up to your expectations, and then it failed as a cookie. <laughs> but there's this real expectation. And for chocolate chip cookies, I haven't done the experiment to the depth that I really see the limit in it. because always. But now I can feel the limit is in the, uh, the sugar. Um, but it also doesn't deliver as much as my mind says it's going to. But I have to pay attention there. I can't just sort of eat it and kind of go unconscious. So this, what Christina talked about last night, the Vedana quality, it really behooves you to, to actually put on hooves and really look at Vedana because it will do more for your suffering than almost anything you could do with your mindfulness is getting a sense, oh, it's unpleasant. That's why I don't like it. That's why I'm ramping up all this reactivity. That's why there's so much ill will. At its core it started with something that was unpleasant. And if I could actually breathe with something unpleasant, I don't have to go on the journey of defeating the thing and changing all of humanity to get rid of this thing. I can breathe through it and then ask, hey, could we do something about this unpleasantness? But if it means changing human behavior so that I don't have to feel something unpleasant, that's a hard one. That's a hard one. So we come to this third foundation, which is mindfulness of citta, mindfulness of mind. My parents are uh, neuroscientists and uh, they, so my whole life I've grown up with this sort of talk and insight and referencing to neuroscience. And that's mindfulness of the brain, but also interested in mindfulness of human experience but talked about uh, the brain is very much a thing explored. Uh, You are exploring a brain. And so I've asked my parents, have you ever explored your own brain from the inside? And I was like, no. I was like, why wouldn't you do that? You have a brain. You could use mindfulness and map out the inside of a living human brain. You could get inside your own mind and notice how blood sugar changes and that changes your mood or how you get caught in this thing and the next day you don't mind it as much like there's so much in there and they're like yeah that's psychology yeah yeah yeah." (laughs) it's a it's a soft science it's very gooey so we're going to get into the real thing and the right chemicals intervening upon it and you don't suffer as much I said, that's amazing you actually have a brain and you have absolutely zero interest as neuroscientists in taking seven days to watch how it operates, to watch it think, to watch it get caught on a thought, to watch it get a song, a song stuck in its head, to watch it anticipate a meal, have a meal, and then think about the meal. Like, and they're, they're like, we've written papers on neuroscientists. Nobody is interested in my drivels of looking at an actual human brain from the inside. It's like, how could you not be interested? How could you not be interested? So this is what this foundation of mindfulness is, is actually looking at your subjective experience of your own mind. And what your mind is doing is, except when you're asleep, it is giving you direct access to a human mind. Now, you take it very personally because it's your mind, (laughs) but you also... (laughs) You also could say, "Okay, I'm just from the next 24 hours, I'm just going to sit back, got my popcorn, got my soda, and I'm just going to watch what a human mind does. Oh my god, it's so petty. Oh my god, it really is concerned what someone said in third grade. And it took it really personally. And it's been like arguing why that's not the case ever since. It does wonder about space travel. I'm like ah, oh, look what this mind does, and that's. You know, early on I thought I was going to master my own mind quite quickly. It seemed like okay, this is a doable thing. It's a limited thing. I'm going to get in there and master it, and I was. Uh, I spent a year doing practice in Burma, and I just kept discovering things about my mind. It's like, what don't I know that I'll know next week, but I really don't know it about my mind right now, and like. I've just seen it, I've seen its patterns, I've seen its particularities, but I will know something next week by looking at it now and I will learn, and it has layers and layers and that was 20 years ago and I'm still looking at layers. It's amazing, it's amazing that this thing is that complex. It's not like tic-tac-toe where you run out of uh, permutations quickly. Your own mind, is quite incredible, how it moves, how sensitive it is, how powerful it is, how deep some of the habits are, and they're deep for a long time, and then one day, the habit just evaporates, or the habit evaporates slowly over time, or you're still working on the same habit through therapy and uh, LSD trips and whatever you can to try to dislodge this habit, and the habit just keeps chugging along. So if we didn't take our minds so personally, we could learn a lot about being human. And then some of the themes are universal. Some people have a little more fear. Some people have a little more anger. Some people have a little bit more natural peacefulness. But we all have a human mind and there are a lot of commonalities to having a human mind. And that's what the invitation of mindfulness is. And what I would love for you to do is get more intimate and take it less personally. So one of the ways that I do that, and it's it's a game, it's a language game, but I sometimes talk about myself in the third person very intimately. It's like, yeah, Temple woke up and he was so groggy this morning. And I tried my best to wake him up because he had things to do and he just would not wake up. (laughs) Now, if I talk about Temple in the third person, I don't have to take it personally that he was hard to wake up. It's sort of like having a kid and you're like, oh, wow, I don't know what happened, but he's hard to wake up. And sometimes I'll tell that to people. It's like, yeah, Temple's having a strange day. Temple is, ha- is flying today. <laughs> Temple's having a really good day. More intimacy, but less about the observing me. That it's like, ah, oh, if I don't solve Temple, you know, I'll have to experience him. And he's in a grumpy mood today. It's like, wow, oh, he's really in a grumpy mood. He's really fixated on something. And that has grown out of this practice of being mindful of my own mind. And seeing that I shouldn't take it so personally. What I can take personally is I've worked with Temple a long time. (laughs) So I put in my time to work with Temple. And he has some insecurities that are really deeply rooted. (laughs) But he also has some strength that I've learned that I was taking for granted. They weren't pointed out when I was young. And I've had more sophisticated friends who are like, you know, you have a real quality here. And I was like, oh, it's the first time someone said that. Oh, interesting, I can now see that. Now, if I say I can now see the body of me, then it becomes something I have to wear and cherish and polish and keep at the ready. But it's an interesting thing about me getting to know Temple. It's like, oh, that's an interesting observation on the outside. I'm going to see if I can observe that from the inside. This is one way we suffer a lot less, is a heightened self-intimacy, but not taking that self so personally so you're going to do that it's going to happen to you anyhow and you could go with this wisdom or you could be dragged into it but you cannot control what will happen tomorrow and it won't be your fault but you will blame or credit yourself by (laughs) what happens tomorrow if you ever seen the opening of the simpsons uh they have this thing where this car is swerving and they show this child in the passenger seat turning a plastic wheel and the car, is swerving. And they back up a little bit and of course the parent is actually driving. It's just the child is with the wheel banging the horn. We are the child in the seat. I'm going to have a good sit. I'm going to concentrate. I'm going to do this. Beep, beep, beep. <laughs> and you come in and like that does not happen. Or it does happen. You're like, ah. Oh, I am now I now have agency. <laughs> I know what to do. And it's like, wait, where's my agency? And it's like, well, did you ever really have a real wheel? <laughs> it's like, it felt so much like a real wheel. <laughs> and so then there's this collapse of agency. And like, oh my God, I can't control this mind. It's crazy. And then if you go through the five stages of despair and then you come <laughs> up and you're like, Okay, interesting. I have no control over this mind, but I can influence it. And I have more influence if I befriend it. So if I befriend my angry mind, versus like stop being angry, and it's like it's like ah oh, temple, you really could let this one go. Like okay, 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 okay. I see you have a fixation, but you and I are both going to suffer a lot, and eventually you'll forgive this person. So couldn't we? It's like, it's like, okay, okay, okay. But really, yeah, okay. Yeah, see, see, now we're breathing better. It's like, oh, yeah. So I totally can influence Temple, but I have no control over him. And that's one way that I suffer a lot less, is I don't take myself as personally. But not taking your own mind personally is, that is one by little degrees, because our minds generate our subjective experience. And so what else would you take personally? We take our bodies personally. We take our minds personally. So it's, it's a dual thing to like step back from this taking it so personally, but step in with this mindful curiosity. And in that way, your mind is going to show you what human sadness is like. Your mind is going to show you what human boredom is like. Your mind is going to show you what uh, strange satis- human satisfaction is like that you can't put your finger on, why you'd be that content. Your mind is going to show you genius that arises and passes. And then where'd it go? where did it come from? How do you do that again? And it will show you all these things. And after a while, you won't try to like, grab any one of them you'll begin to be intimate with yourself. It's like moving to a different part of the world and then getting used to the the weather patterns there and then getting used to the language that people speak there and then getting used to the fragrances there and then getting used to the plants there and then getting used to the animals there and the seasons. And it's like, oh, I'm not here to impose something. I'm here to open up to it. And there are rainy days and there are sunny days and... And that's, you suffer a lot less when you can actually befriend yourself in more places. As you do that, there are fewer places that you don't befriend yourself, and then you heighten your curiosity. Why can't I befriend myself when I've just made a social faux pas or when I've just done something that's embarrassing? Why do I drop myself? The very moment I should embrace myself kindly, that's the moment I drop myself like, that just adds to the pain. It's like, I know, but I don't want to be close to the one who just made that mistake. I also don't want to be there, but I just made it, so I can't get away from me fast enough. It's <laughs> like, oh, wow, that hurt. Yeah, there's shame. Who people are laughing And I'm not sure it's with me. I'm pretty sure it's at me. <laughs> okay. How are we doing? Okay, yeah. Yeah, that was a mistake. Okay, some shame came up. Okay. Okay, that's not so bad. Okay, I can live through that. So then you start being curious, that, like, what could this mind do that I wouldn't want to experience, that I brace against, that I fight against? This is the beautiful part about this third foundation of mindfulness. It has no language of intervention. So the first three foundations of body, of Vedana and of the mind, these first three, there's no language of intervention. You are courageously asked to watch these things arise and pass, to watch them change. So we all might want a different body and slightly improved body, but what is it just to know a body without our preferences, to relax our preferences and just take a body with its heartbeat, its breathing, its sweating, It's aches, it's pains, it's well-being. And like I'm not going to intervene. I'm just going to take every expression of body as a data point of what it means to have a body. So you have to soften a lot of your preferences. And that's often the basis of good science, is softening cultural expectations so you can actually see something fresh, And then you build your understanding from that fresh contact versus a lot of cultural assumption. assumption. So you have to soften your preferences of who you'd rather be and what states you'd rather have. You can keep them lightly, but you can also experience softening that and just see what's naturally arising. And this is the language of the third foundation. The third foundation has this language When a practitioner understands a mind with greed as a mind with greed, and when a practitioner understands a mind without greed as a mind without greed, that is how we practice mindfulness. So, how many of you are in murderous rage right now? (laughs) Okay, a few of you are, but you're not brave enough to raise your hand. (laughs) But hopefully you're not. But how many of you are knowing that you're not in murderous rage right now. You, now that we ask the question, the hands go up, but you weren't enjoying the fact that you're not in murderous rage <laughs> right now. You're taking the state that you're in and you're in it. But in that way, the state is defining you unconsciously. So if we were to take on the challenge, I'm going to know a mind with fear and a mind without fear. So, no fear right now, but that's one of my frequent places I go. So I'm going to breathe in and out, be in my body, but I actually want to get to know fear from within fear. It's very hard to do. You know, I have a lot of instinct not to make fear worse or bigger, but what would it be like to walk in and see a fear wave arise, dance around, and then dissipate as it absolutely must? because it's just a passing wave. As Pink Floyd says, just a passing wave, one of my bad days. You're just in it, and it's arising and passing. And then when it passes, you can then say, okay, that was impermanent. This is a mind, it now understands fear a little better. And also fear is impermanent. I don't have to fear it as much, which bolsters me, next time it comes, I'll hold this faith, That it's not permanent, it's just a visitation of a certain emotional pattern. We get to know a mind with greed and a mind without greed. We all prefer a mind without greed, but that preference will really block your ability to welcome mindfulness into a mind with greed, because you'll judge it. This is day three, day four, I shouldn't have this by now. Let me go in and prune this, talk myself out of it, let it go. There is room for that. And that's the language in the fourth foundation. Language in the fourth foundation is now that I know greed a little better. I've seen my mind with greed, without greed. I've seen how greed arises. I've seen how greed passes. Now that I know greed a little better, I'm going to wisely intervene upon it as a suffering state. So that's the language of the fourth foundation. I understand what brewed that greed or that hatred so now I know how not just to be obsessed and tight on my preferences I know how to actually befriend and invite my mind to let go of why it's caught in ill will but you first have to know ill will I mean you can do light interventions but there actually is a power to being courageous enough to bring your mindfulness into this is a mind cooking in ill will And I want out, but I'm actually going to breathe. Maybe I can feel this in my body. That's often grounding. It's like, oh yeah, there's all this tightness in my shoulders and I'm clenching my jaw. I'm really fixated. Ah, it's so pressured. Like you're actually getting to know ill will from within ill will. The first thing you do is you have to know that you're in ill will. And a lot of our habits are really familiar. There was one retreat where I think I was sitting about three rows back on this side, in this room, warm June day. We were doing loving-kindness practices, so I was trying to invite my mind to be more loving. But I was pretty much judging everybody in the room. <laughs> and it seemed so accurate. <laughs> that I was like, I don't. this doesn't seem like ill will. This just seems like... I'm getting to know people pretty well. It's like, you're the heavy breather, you put too much sugar in your tea, I I saw it. You're the one who walks slowly through the narrow corridor and actually builds up a line of people behind you, who's so grateful you are enjoying the slowness, but they're all like, oh my god. Or people who slowly try to get ahead of the slow walker, before they get in the doorway so that they won't be slowed down. It's like, I got you all figured out. It was pretty aversive, but growing up in New England, it felt really natural. <laughs> and then the windows are open because it was the summer. And I heard a, a dog, I heard a bell on a dog collar outside the window. And I thought, That's somebody, that dog would have come from pretty far away. I mean, it's one of the nearby houses. But I was in this averse mood, and so I was like, why is there a dog here? That, that dog should probably be on his property, and now that we have the windows open, I have to endure this dog bell, and like, who put the bell on a dog? And, like, and so I started really kind of like, rah, 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 rah. and it was the same thing I was doing to all the people in the room, but I had this little periscope go up and say, you usually don't hate dogs. <laughs> And you're really like hating on this dog. And <laughs> it doesn't seem like clarity. Like it seemed like clarity, yeah, there ought to be a rule, we ought to talk to the neighbors, like totally. And we all know, we need to manage the dogs. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a little extreme. <laughs> and it was one of the first times a light bulb, I'm in an averse mind. <laughs> oh, it feels like clarity, but everything has a razor's edge. And it's really unkind to people and it's it's negative. Like everybody has a negative thing, like so there's not a positive thing I could say about anybody with these other students doing their hardest to open their hearts, and I'm just like rah, 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 rah. And it's like, wow, I'm in it and I have no awareness that I'm in it, so it propagates. And I start applying it to dogs, and I was like, No, that, that's too far. <laughs> And then it's like, oh, I'm in an averse mind. And then I started looking from within an averse mind. I was like, wow, it is just cataloging all the wrongs. And I actually have a good catalog building on everybody. It's like, why would I collect this? Like, why is my mind collecting this? And so I began to explore the averse mind. I was like, oh, somehow it feels like it's gaining power, it's gaining insight. This is kind of my family thing where the most cynical person is usually the, the rightest person because they can stand the hard truth. And I'm like, is that what truth is? Being the most cynical? And so I started watching this Mayan and it's like uh, being in a funhouse with a bent mirror. And you're like, yep, that's reality. And it's like, that can't be reality. It's like, wow, look at the warp on that reflection. It's like, ow, oh. How many times have I been in an adverse mind and just thought it was accurate? Mm -hmm. And therefore I propagated it and started collecting catalogs, detailed catalogs of every thing that was wrong with other people. And then I end up in the same tower of righteousness and cynicism. It's like, wherever I go, I kind of build that tower and I'm trying to get out of it. I'm trying to do loving kindness And that was beautiful to try to go into loving-kindness, but it was actually much more powerful to get inside of my own averse mind and start noticing how does an averse mind work. Now, it can't be so averse that you're swept in it. And it can't be so light that it's easily flicked away. But you might take some of your small aversive moments and rather than correct them, go back to the breath, loving-kindness, okay, dealt with. okay, I'm actually kind of like, yeah, I'm really fixating on the way this person next to me walks on the squeaky board. There's a squeaky board on the floor and they are not compassionate enough to step over that squeaky spot. (laughs) I definitely would do that. Oh, I think I know who they are. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm I'm kind of assassinating this character because they step on the squeaky board. I might have the, the flaw in this dynamic. There might be irritation in my system. It's it's horrible to know this. I can see why I don't want to know this. It's like I'm on a hot hot oven. It's so hot, so intense. I'd rather they not walk on a squeaky board (laughs) than face my own aversion. But I would have to get everybody never to walk on squeaky boards or I could get to know my own aversiveness. And then... Some other point in the retreat, people are walking on squeaky boards. I'm like, oh, it's just sound. This is a mind without aversion. Oh, it's spacious. It's generous. Oh, there's space in this mind. Space enough for reality. There's squeaky boards. People walk on them. Wow, oh, I'm not hating this person. Oh, this is a mind without aversion. I have a mind often without aversion, and I don't... Check it out. Nice thing about checking out of the mind without aversion is that it gives you contrast and it really heightens your awareness like, okay, this is a mind not obsessed with pleasantness and chasing it and feeling like I'm thirsting over here. I have to have that thing. That's a mind with greed. Then later on, yeah, this mind can give or take the same thing I was greedy about earlier. How's a mind without greed? Wow, what a contrast. And then it becomes fascinating. And then big being a popcorn, big thing of your favorite drink. Like let me just watch this. Let me not always correct it, but I want to know a mind with greed. And I could either do that by studying all of you as a clinical psychologist, and like I'm really understanding human greed. Or I could go in and have like a front row seat to human greed. Like, wow, it does not care about other people. It wants what it wants, and it's willing to bend the rules to get what it wants. In fact, the rules don't apply to me. It's so interesting. When, when I'm greedy, the rules do not apply to me. When I'm not greedy, the rules are a beautiful social dance that I want to be kind, I want to generate a field of safety. The rules are not oppressive when I'm not in greed, but when I'm in greed, the freaking precepts get in the way of my happiness. <laughs> Interesting, the mind with greed struggles with the precepts. The mind without greed finds the precepts a noble dance among people trying their best. Oh, that's a learning. So you know a mind with greed, mind without greed. And then when greed comes, you don't have to go fix it. It's like, oh, wait, wait, wait. I'm gonna explore a mind with greed. And then when you look at greed, it evaporates sometimes. You're like, don't go away, I was gonna steady you. <laughs> wow. Usually it's so oppressive. I was so open to it, and I couldn't even find it. Like it, well, That usually oppresses me. But I looked at it, I opened up to it. At its core, what was it? It was energy, it was a little tightness in the body, a little obsessiveness in the mind. At its core, it was quite empty of anything lasting. But when I don't explore it, it's a big thing I have to run from, solve. But if I can get into the middle of it, at some point, it begins to break down and evaporate. Now that's not an immediate fix. And if you want the immediate fix, you're really not there with greed, you're there to fix it with mindfulness. I want to get inside, you really know you so I can get rid of you? Versus, no, no, you're here to teach me about greed. And it's like, oh, it didn't last that long. I'll have to study it again later. Oh, it doesn't last long. And now this is a mind without greed. I get to study this. And it just would have been kind of like, yeah, I was breathing, it was fine. Did you take that moment to understand this is a mind not suffering? I was like, well, it was just me breathing. Like, yeah, but you're all, you could suffer. You have suffered over just sitting and breathing. When are you not suffering when you're just sitting and breathing? I think that's something to be mindful of. It's like, yeah, that's a, the suffering won't come because you have a body The body feels unpleasantness, but the body doesn't really suffer. And Vedana comes and goes, as is natural, but the mind can suffer. So then, mindfulness of the mind gets curious about experiences that are suffering. You'll notice that it's hard to get mindfulness inside a suffering mind, because there's hindrances there, there's prohibitions there, mind doesn't want to be there when it's suffering. It's busy blaming something else. So you kind of have to work against some of the unconscious forces to breathe your way into your own ill will and then breathe your way in and build faith. I can have this experience and it doesn't define me. I can have this experience and it won't become permanent. I can have this experience and I can learn from it. So the first three things to be mindful of is to know a mind with greed, a mind without greed, and then that opens you up to actually seeing waves of greed. A mind uh, with hatred, a mind without hatred, a mind that's confused. Can you bring mindfulness into a mind that's confused? Not really, because it's too confused to be mindful. But you knew that much. So there was a little bit of mindfulness to know it's hard to be mindful inside a confused mind. But that can also grow over time to where you can be quite dull and turn to a good friend and say, wow, this mind is so dull. This mind has not woken up. This mind is baffled. Around a good friend that won't judge you for that, you, they can share like, wow, what's that like? What are you noticing inside your own confused mind? In the moment that is confused, knowing it's just a wave, can you explore it? You can take this practice into knowing a mind that has a little more wholeness and samadhi to it, and seeing that come and go as waves. You can also know a mind that's free. A mind that's streaming through, and conditions can be whatever they are. And you don't find you're hooked by any of it. Like, wow, I usually get hooked by this. And I'm having the experience, and I'm not hooked by it. Strange, I'm intimate with this experience and I don't feel hooked like I usually am. Like, oh, that's a mind that's knowing its own freedom. Freedom from old patterns of where it would get hooked. And then this beautifully sets you up for the fourth foundation where if there's a beautiful quality and you're mindful of it, you see, oh, this is how it arose. This is how I was able to sustain it. This is how it eventually fell apart. So how do we practice mindfulness? You're all learning that. Well, if I move too quick, it's very hard to be mindful. Okay, I can support mindfulness by slowing down just a little bit. Coach myself inside from the inner learning. Mindfulness is actually pretty important. There's being really checked out or there's being present. Yeah, I want to appreciate mindfulness. Slow down a little bit. Be in a more simple environment. And then you say, oh, that really supports mindfulness. But once it builds momentum, I can take it into challenging places. Like being in the dining hall when there's all those sounds and choices you have to make. It's like, oh, I'm more mindful than I was on the first day. We can learn about mindfulness and how to support it. So learning about beautiful qualities and what, how to be a good gardener of beautiful qualities. And then learning about suffering qualities and seeing if we can take out the conditions that feed our ill will. So one of the things that is helpful is to take, be more intimate with yourself and take yourself less personally. So my little game of talking about myself in the third person comes from a subjective experience of my own mindfulness where I'm like, oh, it's not the witness, not as a noun, but my witnessing can't take responsibility for what it's witnessing. This mood came in like weather. I really was attempting to be still, quiet, and patient. But man, I am just in some froth here. What if I don't take it so personally as a statement about my worth as a meditator? So put that down. What if I actually, what is this? What words would I use to describe this? It's confused. Oh yeah, it's really confused. There's not any aversion. Oh, there's a little aversion. Yeah, there is a little aversion. I noticed that. A little dig at somebody or myself. But mostly it's just baffled. Oh. So then you're using every moment of the day and you end up filling out the color wheel where you start with three primary colors. You know, red, yellow, and blue. But then you see what a little bit of confusion and irritation is like. So then you have orange and then you... And eventually you fill out this color wheel where you know your mind as it goes through human experience. And that is super orienting. You all might know somebody who's angry and you say, I think you're angry. And they're so angry that you said they were angry. I'm not angry! Like, whoa! <laughs> That's a lot of anger without knowing that that person's angry. Or what's it's, like, it's like, wow, I'm really getting angry. Mm, why am I so angry? I was just about to blame you. Why would I get this angry about it? Like watch the safety that creates. Like, wow, this person's really trying to be present where it's hard to be present. And they're trying to understand what the anger is coming from versus a little bit of mindfulness, but still blaming the outside world for making them angry. And then that person takes full responsibility. I'm really in an angry mode. I think we need to talk about this later, but I really have to understand what this is coming from. There's such a different outcome when we can be conscious inside our own mind and know it. And it's a beautiful part about a long retreat like this is Your mind is showing you itself all day long. It's showing you its different capacities. And again, I've been using the word mind, but there are kinds of knowings where you'd be knowing and you feel aligned with your body and you'll know something and it won't even have a big story around it, but it will just land. It's like, yeah, yeah, I really understand this. And I don't yet have a big map around it, but. I really know something down in my bones. Different type of knowing. And that's still citta. So we can use the English word mind. We can get to know this feeling state, this understanding of citta. And it's another place to point your attention. We recommend that you still primarily work with the body as a grounding place. But also as you're going through the day, take a look. How is my mind relating to the breath? How's my mind relating to the people around me? Is this a suffering state? Is there greed here, is there not? In either way, you get to know that example of having a human mind. So let's just sit for a moment.